On today's episode, part one of my conversation with Anton Lucky and his redemptive path forward from incarceration to a life of activism. And I accepted everything that happened up until that point. You know, I was, I, cause I didn't want to be the one who blamed it on the system. I didn't want to be the one who blamed it on my mother. I didn't want to be the one who blamed it on my father not being there. Because at the end of the day, I had to accept that I made the choices that I made. And, and for me to get to the next stage in my life, I had to accept that. I, I couldn't blame nobody else for that. I had to accept it. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. What a thrill and honor to have Anton Lucky on the show. Anton was the founder of the 415 Dallas Bloods Gang, who eventually transformed himself into this redemptive leader and impactful activist. This is such an inspirational and aspirational story of adversity, personal accountability, radical empathy, and contrarian activism. You are going to be so moved with the story. In fact, it's going to be a two-parter. We could only get through on this first episode up to the point where he was born through his descent into the drug culture, the founding of the Dallas Bloods, and eventually in prison, and that's when the transformative process began. And then we'll do part two next week, where it brings him up to his present day and all the, again, contrarian activism that Anton has been a part of. Again, this is a story of his descent into the feudal hopelessness of gang culture, his spiritual and leadership awakening in prison, and again, that contrarian activism that he's doing today. You are going to be inspired by this amazing story. Anton's dynamic energy of compassion and complete understanding is unlike anything you've ever heard. And so let's get on with this amazing conversation, part one, with one and only Anton Lucky here on The Dose. Welcome to the show, my friend. Man, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. Well, it's been a while since we last talked. You know, we were put together and hopefully we get this pitch of your story it needs to be told but hey it's going to be told here in dose of leadership today yes so indeed. i feel privileged privileged that you're here sitting man there's so much to talk about with you and i think just up front like i was asking you before what do you want to make sure it gets across this is a story of redemption it's probably one of the most powerful redemption stories i've ever come across so far. thank you it, it, it almost seems uh to not to even be real like this can't even be true you could even write a story like this right? <laughs> You write this story in Hollywood, say, I'll come up. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, started in Dallas. You're still living in Dallas, right? I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'm still here. Born and raised. Ni- 1976, parents brought forth this world, Anton Lucky, in an East Dallas housing project, right? Right. That's kind of where it all started. Yeah. So, you grew up in the projects. And um, give me a sense of that. What were your, what, what was your... What were your mom and dad like? I mean, how old were they? I don't think I ever got a sense of how old your mom and dad were. My mother was uh, my mother was sixteen, my dad was seven seventeen, right? Uh, when they when they when they, they met probably when she was like fifteen, fourteen, but I, they was six. Mother was sixteen when she had me. My dad was seventeen. But what had happened when I was nine months old? My dad was sentenced to prison. Uh, mm. 50 years in prison, nine months. He ultimately did 37 years flat in prison. And so, wow. for, and for me, right, growing up in the in the projects, you know, in that community, when that happened, my mother closed the door on that situation. She closed the door, and unfortunately for me. No one, I mean, absolutely no one uh, explained to me as I began to get a little older, you know, as a kid, you know, what was the situation with my father and who he was. It was just like he disappeared, like he was no longer. Yeah, he was never a factor in your life as ne- far as your earliest memory. Right. right. He so was he never, he wasn't even a factor. But as a kid, uh, I grew up. Wanting to know, you know, as a kid, Rich, you want to know, course. you want to know who this Absolutely. is. 
But the interesting thing about it was I felt I felt dumb to even ask that question. Really? I, I felt dumb. Like I wanted to know, but it was like it was like this feeling of like you feel dumb, like asking the question, asking that kind of question. I'm asking about that I have to be as a kid ask questions about my father. I, I remember feeling so did because when you asked it, it was just too painful. Well, it's not just that it's painful. It just for me as a kid, I felt like that's something that I should have already known, or somebody should have told me. Somebody should have had that yeah. conversation to me. I should never been put in a position where I had to ask. You know, it should have been relayed sure. to me, or conveyed to me, and no one conveyed it to me. Like I said, my mother closed that chapter, and that chapter was gone. I, no matter. Uh, you know, no matter how I looked at it, the chapter was closed for her. She closed that chapter for whatever her reasons were. And no one else decided that it was important for me to know that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, put it. Trying to think, you know, here she is. She's 17. Mm -hmm. No man in the house. She's trying. She's not even a legal adult. She's trying to raise. Right. Right. You. And, right. And. And I imagine there was probably a string of men that probably came in. Right. You know, your earliest memory of men were probably, I mean, she was probably, right? I mean, right. Didn't she have a string my, of men coming through her life? My, my, uh, yes, I had, it was actually two, my, uh, that came along, my brothers, my siblings' father came and he was with us for, for a couple of years. Then he left. And then another, uh, guy came in, seemingly nice guy. Um, he ended up doing followed up. He, he ended up doing drugs, and so he left. And so, but no one again, no one was particularly interested in making sure that I knew who my father was. And I, as a kid, wanted to know. I wanted to know that. I wanted to have those conversations, but it yeah. it just didn't feel right asking, having those conversations because I because I think when I when I look back on it in hindsight, I think. Me not having my father there, and when I started realizing that he wasn't there, et cetera, et cetera, by looking at some of the kids at school who had fathers, all kids who had fathers uh, in, in their home, uh, I started to realize, like, and I, and, I, and I wanted to know. That's when I, start, I really wanted to know, like, what was going on, you know, what's up with my father, et cetera, et cetera. But again, it just it didn't feel natural for me to ask those questions. I mean, Maybe, you know, as a kid, you know, the range of emotions and feelings that I was going through, I didn't have the opportunity to share them with no one. I mean, I couldn't share them with nobody. I just had to. And it made me observe. It made me pay attention more, though. It made me very observant to a lot of stuff, probably too early at an early yeah. age. Well, yeah, you were exposed to things that you really weren't mm -hmm. emotionally prepared for. But, I mean, that's just the I mean, you're just one example of. And this happens to millions of right. kids all the time. And this cycle where, you know, here, you know, you know, no, no positive uh, male role model. Right. Your real father's gone. You don't know where he's at. You're seeing kids in your school that do have kids. You're afraid to ask about it. Your mom does, you know, she's trying to. She's trying to work. She's trying to work and work. figure it out. And she, and, she, and she doesn't have enough energy right. when she comes home after a hard day of work. Right. And so, I mean, it's just, I mean, right. we can see how this happens. And so what happens? So you gravitate right. towards the street, towards where you do have this familial sense, where you do have right. this male influence, this kind of bonding and this testosterone, which right. a lot of people, you know, as two guys, we understand that, right? Right, and right. Sometimes, right. And that's not to take anything away from your mother at right. all. Right. Because she, she did, you know, she was, she was doing the best she could, but she was, like you said earlier, she was a, she was a kid herself. But I'm gonna tell you before, right. but before I gravitated towards the streets, though, it's interesting to point out that I put a lot of my before the streets, I put a lot of my my time and and focus in school, like yeah, and you were you were a great student, right? right. I mean, you were like kicking ass in school. A on a row came to you naturally. Talented, gifted, yeah. yeah. That, that was my refuge. School was my refuge. You know, straight A student, talented, gifted student. Because in my home life, my mother worked. She worked long hours, provide a roof and food on a table. 
So the only other place that I could find uh, some type of solace was in school. So I, I applied myself there. And, and I love that. And I love, you know, coming home, bringing good grades home. My grandparents were like my primary caretaker. So they encouraged me. They loved me. They kissed on me. They gave me the love that I wasn't getting uh, from my father. And in most cases, from yeah. my mother, right? But, but I tell you, that's not the kicker. It wasn't no match for when I walked out the door or what I, I, know. What I dealt the pressure, with. Pressure. Right? Yeah, that pressure. That it, pressure of being in, right? Right. That pressure of being in. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what's so sad, right? It mm-hmm. just makes, makes you ache thinking about here you have all this you know, potential. Right. You see you've got the potential in this really well, crappy circumstance. Right. Right. And then you just, and then the forces just suck you in. The forces take, suck you in. It take over. I mean, it it, it, it takes over because it, it, you know, and I couldn't understand like back then. I, I couldn't, that's why I work so hard at the stuff I do now because I couldn't understand like back then kids were, and, and it, I'm quite sure it's, it's some of that today, but back then it was like we came from the same environment, you know, same situation, poverty, you know, a lot of, a lot of our fathers weren't in the home. And you have some that were, but most, most part it wasn't. Uh, we was dealing with the same issues uh, in terms of the community stuff. But it was like it was innate in kids to just see you as an enemy, you know. And I never understood that. Like kids would just, you know, kid, kids from different neighborhoods, like one mile up the street, saw you as it was ingrained in them to see you as an enemy. And I never understood that, you know. So going to school each day, especially when they when I was going to a school in a different neighborhood than mine, where we were busting us to another school, every day my survival depended on two things. You know, how fast I can run if I miss that school bus or how hard I can fight. That became like my daily struggle. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you 10, 11, 12 years old and you, you know, you have to worry about, you know, who you're going to fight after school. And that becomes your life. You can tell how my grades started. You know, you can understand how my grades yeah. started to started to slip. There was kind of a turning point. I remember reading in your manuscript in your book about kind of this time as your. To me, I think it was it's one of those inflection points where it 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 went the other. It started going down that path. It was when you you were kind of forced in an initiation fight with one of your best friends, Rodney. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what what happened? Man, we were Rodney was my friend. Rodney was, man, this was my boy. You know, we would walk to school every day, come home every day. You know, played every day. You know, that this was my friend. I, I really enjoyed it, my friend. And uh, my cousins, right? My cousins, they were way more sinister, right? <laughs> they was very more sinister, and and the friends they were a little bit older than me. And so, one day after school. They put me and Rodney up to fight, right? You know, they, we had these initiations where you had to fight. You know, where they put the put the stick on your shoulder, and, and whoever knocked when you knock the stick off, and then it's, that's the bell. And and they and I remember coming home, I mean, getting out of school that day, and not knowing, and they faced me and Rodney towards each other to fight. And me and Rodney, we both were looking like, whoa, like we didn't, you know, we both. You could tell that he. He didn't want to, and I didn't either, right? But we was kind of like the peer pressure was that we had to do it. You know, we, we, we couldn't turn away. We, we had all the kids were hunched over, laughing and snickering and, you know, and all that. And so they put the sticks on me and Rodney's shoulder, right? And um, and I remember, man, not having the courage to, to walk away from that situation. I, never, I felt so bad because I... I didn't have the courage to walk away from that situation. And I actually went through with that. I, I knocked the sticks off. Me and Rodney uh, started fighting, right? Uh, and I just, and all I can hear is just the kids taunting us, laughing, and, you know, egging us on, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I felt bad. I mean, I felt real bad afterwards uh, going home because Rodney was my friend. Uh, but I didn't have the courage to walk away from that. I didn't have the courage to stand up to my cousins and my friends who had 
who had egged that on and put that on. And so, yeah, that, that bothered me. I mean, that was kind of like the first uh, incident that I had where I had to fight, where I had to participate uh, in the shenanigans, you know, in my neighborhood. Yeah, and, and a month later, he drowns. Right, right. And right. so you never had this kind of, right. you never kind of fully had a chance to talk with them about it. And if I remember correctly, you felt like you'd been punished for this this cowardice that you were talking about here, right? You felt like you were punished, right? I, I did. I, I really did. Uh, I remember when our teacher had broke the news to us that Rodney had drowned. It was like a thud in my chest, like some drop. And, and, and I remember sitting in the class feeling like, the universe was punishing me some kind of way. Like I was responsible. That's how I felt like. I, yeah, I felt like I was yeah. responsible. Like some kind of way the, the universe caused that to happen because I didn't have the courage to walk away from that. You know, because Rodney and, and myself, we were very uh we were very traumatized by that situation. And, and I felt like it was the universe doing something to me. Uh by allowing Rodney to, to drown, you know, and, and just the thought that I would never see him again, you know, that, that was the real kicker. Like that's what my first understanding of, of introduction of death, you know, that he, yeah. he ain't coming back. Uh, and you're in the third grade. Is that right? This right. Oh, it's too young. Man. Right. 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 And, and I had another incident that happened similar afterwards. And, I, and when I look back at it, I think a lot of the, those incidents, those two particular incidents, I'm going to tell you about another one, I think kind of shaped me later on in life because I had another friend that I was friends with. He was a, he was a kid from Ethiopia. He was in an orphanage, right? It was called a Buckner, mm -hmm. Buckner, Buckner School Home, you know, and they had kids from like Ethiopia, uh, you know, war-torn countries where they were sending these kids in. And I had a friend named Abdul. This was like my friend. We were equal in classroom. Like we were, he was smart. We both were smart. We both loved education. We, I mean, we A and B, everything, right? And that was my friend, man. And I loved, we sat next to each other in class and I loved talking to him, et cetera, et cetera. He didn't have, he made me feel better because he didn't have no family. You know, I didn't have my father, but he had no family. He, he, he didn't know where his family was. He's an orphan. Yeah, he was an orphan, so he had nothing. And his, you know, just getting to know him and listening to his situation uh, made me feel like, made me grateful of my situation because his situation was right. dire. But he, but every day he came to school, you know, he had this, he had this hunger for education and learning because he, he was, you know, he was learning our culture, you know, American culture. And so, and, and that was my friend. But my cousins, Again, they were bullies. They were they were bad. They were sinister, right? And so they would they would jump on kids and all that good stuff. And so and I remember bad stuff, not good stuff, bad stuff. And so I remember one day uh, coming around a cone in school, and one of my cousins, he had Abdul jacked up against a locker, right? And I knew what he was doing, you know, my cousin. He was, he was, he had him jacked up against the wall locker. And I remember when I, when I, when I come around the corner, I seen it and I stepped back around the corner out of eyesight. I didn't want Abdul to see me. I didn't want Abdul to know that that was my cousin. Uh, and I stepped back out of, out of eyesight, right? And I went back around. I went back around. I didn't want to see it. And so uh, the next day, he came to school and he had a black eye, right? Uh, and I knew why he had that black eye. And I remember like feeling so, my insides felt so bad because again, here it is again, if this was in fifth grade that I didn't have the courage to stand up. You know, it's like this theme. I didn't have the courage to stand up and, 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 and defend. I was ashamed to say Abdul was my friend outside of the classroom, you know, because he wasn't, he didn't have the status, uh, socially accepted. So I didn't. So that was a thing, you know, I, and it was similar to Rodney that I didn't have the courage. And, and, and that's bothered me for a long time. 
that bothered me. Whatever happened to uh, Abdul? I, I never knew because I, I ended up, my mother ended up transfer, transferring me from that school because we were bused to that school. Uh, she ended up transferring, they, no, they ended up redistricting uh, and they sent us to another school. But I never knew is this what. When you start, yeah, you never knew. Yeah. So you're going to South Dallas. So this is when you go to South Dallas when you get bust. Is that right? Right, right, yeah. right, right. So in the book, you said you might, I mean, it might as well be going to, to, to North Korea, basically, right? I right. Mean, this is like going into. Yes. Enemy territory. Foreign country. Yeah. Enemy territory. Right. So yeah. is this, have you, are you already kind of dipping your foot in the gang culture at this point, or are you still kind of keeping yourself out of it by the time you go to South Dallas? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm still keeping myself out of it. Uh, I'm, I'm living this duality, this, this dual life. So yeah. I, 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 I'm in this classroom, I'm trying to excel, you know, focus on my work, but my cousins and friends, they had a reputation. So I would walk this fine line of kind of, being around them but not participating, you know, and, and so I'm. Yeah. But 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 at the particular time, we hadn't we hadn't got into the gang understanding. In our minds, we were just, you know, representing or uh, either defending our neighborhood because it was it was neighborhoods by neighborhoods by which a lot of these confrontations happened. So it, it hadn't turned to the gang stuff yet, but it was on its way. It was definitely on its way. Now you get thrown into enemy territory. Right. As far as they're concerned, I mean, you're you come from a rival neighborhood. You go into a school in a rival neighborhood. You're not in the gang culture, but you become a target, obviously. Right. 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 Oh, right. Yes. Hey, that's so and so's cousin, man. Right. And then all these kids, all these kids at the particular at this particular time, they were involved. They were gang involved. Yeah. You know? and, 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 right. and I remember at a time when I thought like. I thought that was weird. I thought that was like, I thought that was odd. That it, I didn't understand it. I didn't understand. These kids were wearing blue bandanas and they were throwing up gang signs. I remember, I can remember a time when I, I thought that was kind of odd and, 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 and weird and awkward and all that good. I didn't, I didn't understand it. But these kids were already affiliated and they, were, and they would fight us. They would pick on us. We were the kids that they picked on because we weren't affiliated with a gang. And so that became, Kind of like the introduction, uh, first stage into us starting to think in terms of gang. So now you start hanging out at your local car wash and started learning the hustle of the life, right? Right. I mean, right. But so you've got these established gang members, you're trying to stay out of it, but now they're starting to pay you to wash their cars, right? I mean, right. That's kind of the entry level thing, right? And so you're making like what kind of money are we making just cleaning their cars? When we first started out, uh, for the night, local drug dealers, they would give us like five dollars to wash their white walls. That's back when the white walls were uh, yeah, with the a thing. thing. Gangster white walls, the gangster white walls, and so we would wash their white walls. All we had to have was an SOS pad to get them white, and so we started out washing their white walls. These was the hustlers, man. They were they were making money, and they would give us. I mean, they would pull out a Water money, water cash, give everybody five dollars, and and but we washing their white walls, right? We started out washing their white walls, and and when we realized they would pay us for that, we would come faithfully every day after school to the car wash to wash their white walls because that's how we ate. You know, that's how you get out the swimming pool, yeah. you get out the swimming pool, you hungry, you getting out of school, you hungry. We knew intuitively that if you if we went to the car wash. And watch the uh, drug dealers' car, cars; they were gonna give us money, and that became an everyday occurrence for us. So it's almost kind of like I don't know if they were intentionally grooming, but it's almost like a grooming phase, right? Right. And you got this. You you see, they find the entrepreneurs in right, there, right? the hustlers in there, and right. you've got this kind of entrepreneurial genetic mindset, right? You know, you go and you're still in SOS pads, you know, and then <laughs> and I can make five bucks to yeah, yeah. You, you go get your candy or your burger king or whatever after you're done and yeah and that's that's good to go now yeah i'm sure they're probably seeing that kind of entrepreneurial hustler mindset oh yeah it's only a matter of time where they go hey man 
why don't you be a lookout for me and I'll give you whatever. Right. 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 And, and now to step up. Right. That, that's exactly how it happened, because we we would come to the car wash regularly. Right. And and I'm talking about we would me and my cousins and friends. Sometimes we will get into fist fights over who going to wash the cars and wash except, the car, yeah. Right. And so the, the 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 drug dealers, they were watching us. Right. They were looking at us saying these kids hungry. They coming regularly. You know, they, they, they fighting over the, they fighting over who going to do the cars. You know, they, you know, so they start saying it's something different about them. They not just regular kids. They, it's something different. They, they have more aptitude than the other kids. Cause the other kids, you know, they came one or two times. They never came back, but we were coming every day washing their cars because them $5 started stacking up. You know, we, some days we leave yeah. them $15. That's a lot of money for yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. Yeah. Here they are. Now you're doing lookouts, and not only you're probably making a lot more money being a lookout because now you put you got skin in the game now. Oh yeah, they t- they t- they told us they say, look, all you guys have to do, because we ha- we ride our bikes to the car wash. They say we're gonna give you twenty dollars a day. All you have to do is ride your bike up and down this street, and every time you see the police, you holler headache. You holler headache as loud as you can. Every time you see the police, that's all that's all you had to do. And here we is. We riding our bikes up and down the street. And every time we see the police car come, we hollering headache. So then <laughs> you know <laughs> So then they said, oh, they said and I remember too because my mother used to ride the, the, the city transportation, the dark bus, uh, past that car wash when she get off work. Every day faithfully faithfully at four, four forty five. I knew that bus was coming and my mother was on it and she going to be looking dead at that car wash because she knew what was going on. And every day, faithfully, I would duck behind a car, a, a building when it, at 445 <laughs> when so she, was she, <laughs> so she yeah. couldn't see me. Yeah. So and, and so that, that eventually that eventually um, when they saw that we were doing that faithfully, you're right. They could have been grooming us. Uh, then we graduated. Then we really graduated to. They they saying hey, you can be a lookout or you can be a seller. Uh, seller make this, lookout make this, person hold the money make this, and we like what? You know, you for real? That's a lot of money. Yeah. So yeah. one thing that stood out to me in the book is when you talked about even when you you graduate to these phases, you know, you and crack cocaine is really taking off now. We're talking about the early nineties. Crack cocaine is just a, a full on epidemic epidemic right right and you found a way or maybe you learned a way how to manufacture fake cocaine by crystallizing uh a b12 supplement combining with aura gel and coca-cola which i was like what in the hell so here you are for 15 15 bucks you buy this material that's going to net you thousand dollars right you know for that 15 i mean that's a hell of a return and And you see that that's that's unreal money Right. I mean, that's good money for for anybody. This right? this guy, I never forget this guy. I don't know where he came from. To this day, I, me and my friends who survived that era, when we talk about this, none of us can pinpoint, or none of us can say emphatically where this guy came from. But he, I remember him like yesterday. He came into our neighborhood, and we were kids. We were kids. We was like 12, 13 years old at the time. And and he and we full fledged in the culture, right? He started teaching us. He he taught us how to do what you just said, right? To take superior B and make a thousand dollars off a fifteen dollar pack. And so he showed us that, and nobody else knew this at the at that particular time. And we would get we would get ether base, the stuff called ether base. We would get aura gel to make it numb. We would get soda and we'd get orange juice. We was in the kitchen like chemists figuring this stuff out. <laughs> we would, and we almost burnt down a place or two because that ether base, when it hit fire, it just exploded. But we was figuring this stuff out. But it it was fake crack cocaine at the particular time that we was we started making five and six thousand dollars almost every day. Day. Yeah, well, a week when you combine it, but I'm, every day it was like, you know, we were making this money. Like we was, we were, we would spend that money 
and make it right back. You all you had to do was just walk outside, right, and and have some superior B. Nobody knew it, and we would we would we would make. I was going to school. I was going to school at the time, four and five, six thousand dollars in my pocket as a kid. Oh my god! Uh, driving. That's insane. And and I remember we had a we had met this lady who owned a limo company, uh, and she, we would pay her like for eight hours at a time just to drive us around. I would I would be going to school. <laughs> And and I remember the principal saying, Richard, I was just telling somebody about this the other day. The principal was like, every day after school, the principal would be like, hey, Lucky, your limo here? And I'd be like, I don't. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. This is crazy. And I would give, I would give like, I'll, I'd be like, talk, I'd be talking to like a group of girls and I'd reach in my pocket and give them all like $20, $40 a piece. You know, it'd be 10 of them. And walk off, and, and it was that was a lot of money back then, uh, uh, junior high school, and so that that became like that became my introduction. You no know, school, I was still trying to go to school, but by yeah, that yeah. time the culture had a had the, had a, had the headlocks on me. Well, and how can it not? I yeah. mean, when you're making that kind of money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're doing that, you feel important. You know, all of your. You know, and this, I remind the listeners, you're 14, right? right? And so, right. in a matter of months, in a matter of months, right. you went from washing white walls, right, to making five to seven grand a week, right, riding to school in a limo, passing out twenty dollar bills to your friends and girls, right. I mean, that whole life. I mean, that, I mean, that's all a replacement, like we were talking about before, right. for those those father figures and those right. examples, right? And you know, right. And, and when I look back at that particular time, and, and there may have been issue. I mean, there may have been some efforts that was targeted, like mentors, you know, boys and yeah, girls trying. club. But but it, but it never reached me. You know, it never. When I look back yeah. in hindsight, I can't say that there was some efforts or there was some organizations who was geared towards young men like me. I didn't see them. They were non-existent. Right. Just in there. Well, it's because they weren't going, they weren't going into where right. it was happening. Right, exactly. Which, which is an important part of this story, which we'll talk about here. We'll get to because I think that's what makes you unique. You know, right. You, you had the courage. You talked about the lack of courage. Right. You made up for that. Right. Know? Right. Uh, but we'll get to that in a second because uh, because this didn't last very long because in, you you got caught in an undercover sting. Right. So you were riding high in the hog. Right. And you. Ended up selling drugs to an undercover cop. Now, okay, we're facing some real consequences here. And I think, is that right? Am I getting it right? This is when you went to the state. Right. Uh, you run youth prison up in, uh, it's closed now, but I think it's Glenn Mills State but, School, I think is the name of it. That's, a, that's exactly what happened. And it was interesting how it happened. I, you know, it, sold to an undercover cop. Uh, and I actually got away. But I, my cousin, who had just got out of TYC, the Texas Youth Commission, uh, I was I had rode off on my bike when they when they raided, and my cousin had just got out, and I turned around on my bike and seen that they was they had my cousin, and I went to paddling back so fast, thinking I could help him, not knowing that they were looking for me. And so when they seen me, a van pulled out in front of me and said, "We got him," and Uh-oh. and and that sent me uh that sent me to uh, Glen Mills State School, you know. So there you are. I mean, that's kind of when it hit you, right? And you would yeah. think in the time of the story, it's like, okay, now he's going to get straightened out. Because right. Glenn Mills State School, that ain't no what? walk in the park, man. Right. That right. had a bad reputation, man. Man, and I that that that's a whole story in a, in and of itself. My <laughs> so, experience, yeah. yeah, my experience there. Because uh, I but got, you're, but you're going there. Did you think when you were on the plane, and you you know you. I'm sure you saw when you're getting sentenced and your mother disappointment, your grandparents disappointed, everybody disappointed, and you're going 3,000 miles away from Dallas or however far it is. I mean, what were you feeling when that when you when that plane was taken off towards, Man, towards the facility? I, yeah, I didn't. You know what? That was my first time on an airplane uh, ever, and I w- I didn't know what to expect. I had a lot of fears because I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and and again, for me, 
I think I was wearing the armor of the culture, but deep inside, yeah. I was just a little boy screaming for help, screaming for, you know, some kind of action, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so when I got off, when I got off that plane, it was, it was new. I remember, I remember getting off the plane and in the airport, uh, these two big old white guys, I mean, they look like bodybuilders. They walked up to me. Okay. They say, all right, let's go. And then I, and I asked them a question. I said, I said, Hey, where my bags at? Cause I, you know, I don't know that you got to go to baggage check to get the bags. I'm like, where's my bag? I know I got on this plane with some bags. Where are they? And the guy grabbed me by my shirt, by my collar, and jacked me up in the middle of the airport. Uh, and said, little motherfucker, I'll kick your ass. You know, he, and I remember being like, whoa. I was like, whoa. And, and, and that was my introduction to Glen Mills State School. Well, yeah. They, they, it was a place, I mean, historically, it was found in the early 1800s, right? I right. Mean, it was, the Ivy League of juvenile correctional facilities, <laughs> right? I mean, they didn't fuck around at this place. They didn't. Right? They and didn't play no games. They played no games. And you were labeled when you got there as mm. a, a quote unquote major concern, which is the lowest rank, the, the lowest kind of label that you can have. Like this guy is a troublemaker. Yes. And so I'm sure that that pressure was hard on. It was harder on you than. Oh yeah. Average day Joe, right? Oh yeah. When we the, my first day there. On our way there, I was in the back seat with two other kids who they picked up from Dallas at the airport, and I and 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 I'm reeling in the back seat because I'm 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 still not trying to, I'm still not registering why this guy grabbed me in the airport and jacked me up and and said what he said to me, you know my mind I'm I'm still stuck there, and so on our way to the to the facility, some kids threw some rocks and hit the car. You know how the kids rock the car. And, and, and the kids, the two dudes in the in the back seat with me started laughing, right? I didn't, because I'm still sitting here reeling off the fact yeah. that he grabbed my shirt. And the guy looks back at me and says to me, oh, you think it's funny, <laughs> MF? You think it's funny, MF? He looked dead at me. Now I'm double mad because I didn't laugh. You jacked me. You. Yeah, and so, so when we get back to the facility, Man, it was about five or six of these bodybuilding-looking guys. They were all bodybuilding. I was probably about 145 pounds, uh, and they and they and they circled me, right? And they went to taunting me. And next thing you know, they started pushing me, pushing me around. And I'm little, and I lunged at one of them, and he Uh-oh. he picked me up. And next thing you know, I was flying across the room. And I landed on a on a stack of desks and chairs that was in the corner, and I remember hitting my side pretty hard, right? And and, and I fell on the ground and I looked up and I said, "This is real pain. This is not a dream. Like this really happened. I really feel pain." <laughs> and that, and that, that was my introduction to the school. Like I I, I felt really pain. And I'm and I'm like whoa. And I, and I looked in the. I remember looking up and. To the sky and saying, "Man, I'm like, I don't even know where I'm at. I got on an airplane. I don't even know where I'm at." And that they labeled me a major concern. And it took it took it took me about six or seven months to adjust to that because this school was known for. And I'm, I'm quite sure you probably read the uh, the lawsuits that it had. This school was known for uh, for for a harsh way that they treated those students there. You know that's why it was some of the best because. They were they they were known for that. And I, it took me a while. It took me a while to adjust to that because, you know, it, you know, they had pictures, big pictures hanging up where they had some of the officers had threw me through the wall, you know, because <laughs> I could I couldn't adjust. <laughs> they just put a picture. Up. They throw me through those walls, those sheetrock walls, and put a picture up to cover what my body print was because I couldn't get in. I couldn't. I just didn't understand. Like these grown men. Were beating up on little kids like they were, you know, beating them into shape, and yeah. it took me a while. It was an old school thing, but you know, and it was peer based too, which was weird, right? Which right, can be very effective. Where where you get first and foremost, they try to get the other kids to do it. Uh, to, yeah, kids to do it, mm-hmm. which can be very effective. And then if not, but you started running, right? I mean, yeah. It, it, so after this kind of 
you get this major concern label off of you, you know, you do have some people that see some potential in you. You start running track. Yes. And you're clearing your mind. And I get that, right? I mean, that's how I made it through right. court training. What, nothing compared to what I went through. But, yeah, that physical release, right? Yeah. You know, where you, nobody's bothering you. Yeah. Getting all those endorphins going through your body and everything. It's a way to escape and survive that tremendous source, right? It became right. a thing of pride for you, right? So here's yeah. some, even though you're going through this kind of negative thing, some positive things start happening. Right. right, exactly. And you walk out of there. You walk out of there a better young man. I did. Right? I did. I, I, did. Yeah. I did. I did. I did. Uh, I went through those experiences, but it taught me a lot. You know, that's one of the things I said. It taught me a lot because prior to that, I didn't know how to give eye to eye contact. <laughs> you had to give eye to eye contact. <laughs> you know, I didn't know how to uh, not uh, use nonverbals and all that good stuff. But I learned that. I learned about being need and 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 you know a whole bunch of whole bunch of positive stuff that i learned there that i didn't some of the stuff that i think that uh your father would teach you you know i learned there you know right. manners and respect and all that yes sir no sir all that stuff that helps me today i did learn it and i left glenn mills uh feeling like i was better you know despite uh in yeah. spite of those situations I left feeling like I was better. I was like, I'm a better, I got a better shot at life. I'm finna go back and I'm finna put into I put into practice everything that I've I've learned in this, all the good stuff that I learned. So I did leave feeling yeah. like that. You gotta go back to high school, you gotta get on the track team. It's right. different. Mm -hmm. But man, the second you step back into East Dallas, man, you're already back in the game, you don't even know it. Right, right. And you don't even know it, but you were already there because it's just sucks you in, right? Right. And shortly after you get there, you're standing around with some friends, talking with your old friends, talking probably talking about how you almost busted your ribs at Glenn Mills or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, telling all your war stories. Mm -hmm. And then here comes this this walk by, right? Here comes these out of nowhere. Right. Two men come in there and start shooting the scene with AK forty seven. Like, what right. the hell? That's when I knew yeah. I was. That's, and that's that's when I knew. I said, you, you know, it's it's um, and it was interesting too because I I remember that day like it was yesterday. Uh, standing out just talking, and these dudes, not more than a hundred feet away with AK forty seven, and started blasting directly at us. And um, did anybody get killed? Did anybody not, get hit? The only it was it, I was standing by a car with with. A little girl, she had to be no more than five, and a little boy that had to be no more than seven. Uh, and I fell down by the car, and all you can hear was just like bullets hitting the car, glass shattering, glass. Jeez. And and I'm I'm reaching, trying to get the kids to get down, because by then they crying and they screaming. So I'm telling them to get down, and uh, out of that whole ordeal, which uh, they shot probably. Over two hundred times, uh, you felt you seen bricks coming off the wall, uh, off the projects building, and and the little boy lost his finger. They sh they shot him in the hand. Boy lost his finger. Lost it, lost his finger, and and it was. And I remember seeing the blood. You know, I remember that the whole scene was so chaotic, and that right there just pushed me back into uh into that mindset. Uh, and it was that yeah, you were back in. Yeah, it was that. That next day, we really declared ourselves uh, the Bloods, and 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 because we knew yeah. they were the, they were the enemy to the Crips, and uh, yeah, because you, you found out that these guys were in the Crips, and so you next day you said, all right, we're going to call ourselves the four four fifteen Bloods, right? Right. So you started the, the Blood faction mm -hmm. there in East Dallas. That's when it was born in March of or in. Uh, spring of 1993 right? right correct correct oh man and so now you're back in it right so right. drive-bys and shootouts become a regular way of life right right now you just you're in it right right and so but now the entrepreneur starts to come out right because now this neighborhood because you kind of declared you know you're kind of the creator of the bloods and like now that this neighborhood becomes yours to exploit right right so you just right. start right right go full-fledged i mean what was that like how how there's a couple years there where i mean you're full-on gang banging I mean, what are you doing like how much are you making i mean what, what's happening 
Well, it's, it it became it became um, definitely one of those times where it, it, you know it was it was shootouts. You know, every day uh, we was confined to our neighborhood. You know, because at that time it was probably nineteen ninety three to ninety five was probably the most deadliest year for gang banging in Dallas. And it's not nothing I'm proud of, but it but it no, did. I know. Yeah, it was it did happen, and so. We were confined to our neighborhoods and and making money in our neighborhoods also kind of limited, you know, the ability to make more money, you know, because you just keep confined to your neighborhood. And so we were doing- But you're running traps, right? I mean, you're running traps and and that's where you're making all your money. Right. Right. Until 1995. So 1995 hit gang stuff on the news, nightly news. 1995, the uh, FBI raided my neighborhood. They had a, I think it was an 18 month, nine to 18 month investigation going on because of all of the violence that was happening. And they, they arrested 48 of my friends who I grew up with, kids, shot marbles, played school, uh, played a house, uh, hango seat, you know, prison bell, one, two, three, red light went into our way into school. They arrested all those guys. Uh, but they missed you, right? They I missed mean, me. They missed. They missed. They came to my house. They came to my house, and you have to understand, Richard. Back then, I had this pattern to where I would get up at five in the morning and leave my house because my mind always said that I knew that I knew that they were coming. I knew that I would be arrested at some point. I just didn't know when, and so my mind always said leave early in the morning because they're going to come around nine or 10 o'clock when they, when they, when they, when they raid. And I would leave every morning from the house at like five thirty six in the morning. Right. And just leave because I felt like they were coming to get me. And so on this particular day, March, it was in March of 1995. I never sleep late. I never, I never sleep past that time that I get up and I leave because I think the police is going to raid my, uh, come to my house. On this particular day, I overslept and I never oversleep and I never sleep hard, but I overslept. I woke up at 11, 15, somewhere, 11, 20, right? And when I walk out my door, everybody in the, everybody in the facility is out, right? Everybody in the projects is out and they, they run up to me and they say, the feds were just at your house. They just left, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Beating at your door, front and front and back. And I'm like, I didn't hear nothing. You know, I'm like, how did I not hear not hear that? And so by this time, now I'm now I'm paranoid. You know, now I I, I leave. Uh, but anyway, end up they end up arresting all of my friends. Uh, fortunately, I didn't make the indictment. My name wasn't in the indictment uh, that they had. So that opens up a whole new opportunity for you. With all right. those names gone, now now right. you're even a bigger name. You're a bigger fish in a smaller pond. You know, right? Small ponds. So all of the guys who who were running drugs in the neighborhood, they gone. It's like a ghost town. And so what ended up happening was, and my name was not on the list. So what ended up happening was, when all those guys left, and I realized that it was just a one time thing. My my pharmaceutical entrepreneurship uh, loans flipped into high gear. And so then, you know, I started, I started back rolling, you know, I started, that that was, you know, that was the neighborhood. That was, and again, I'm not proud of this stuff, but that's, that was, this is important to the story. Right. That's, that's what happened. And so, and so with everybody gone, now I'm the big fish, you know, now I'm, I'm really, clocking dollars now i'm really making money you know i got uh trap houses everywhere but i'm making money you know? and, and, the, and the lure of that money that i was making uh had a stranglehold. Oh, it, had to be huge. It, it had a stranglehold stranglehold on me you know i was i was spending probably seven eight hundred dollars a week just on my cleaner cleaners bill getting my clothes out to clean because yeah. i would never wear the same thing but you know and and the, the ironic thing is or i think i think our irony thing is that that making all that money did afford you some freedom you were talking about this dual lifestyle you were living when you were a kid with the good grades 
you're kind of doing the same thing here because right. this did afford you some freedom. Now you're not physically selling the drugs. You're the man running the show. Right. You can escape the neighborhood. You go somewhere else. And you're starting to have relationships. Right. With girls that are going to yeah. nice schools, nice right. neighborhoods. And so you're living this dual life. Right. And so it had to feel pretty good on one hand, but on the other hand, it had to be conflicting as hell. Oh, it was, it, it, was, it, it was definitely conflicting. You're absolutely right. Uh, it afforded me the opportunity to not be in the hood. You know, it afforded me the opportunity to get out the hood. It afforded me the opportunity to see other things, which I was different life, a different right. lifestyle that I was that I was seeing, you know, because I was hardly in the hood. I was seeing other stuff, but I was still conflicted because, you know, that was that was how I was making my that's how I was making my money. And, and it's like, yeah, you're, you're trying to figure out how do I get out of this? how do I get out of this? You know, what's what's my exit plan, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, because just just the, the stuff that you deal with. In that lifestyle, you have to numb parts yeah. of you that care to even be a part of that lifestyle, and that stuff was taking its toll on me. It was wearing on me. Yeah, and, and, and I'm probably, I probably was the only person who thought like this, who thought like, you know, had this conflicting feeling. You know, anybody else is probably just full fledged. I'm making money. I'm about to profit, et cetera, et cetera. But I was also looking at the devastation of the neighborhood. I was looking at, you know. Some of my friends, mothers and stuff who was on crack. You know, I thought about my mother, uh, boyfriend who, who who ended up selling crack. I, that stuff was, it was weighing heavy on me. I thought about it a lot, you know. Well, it runs out. The luck runs out on you. Right. And you get caught in another undercover sting, even though you're physically not selling the drugs. Right. You get caught. Well, now you're looking at real prison. Right, I mean, the game's kind of up. He also found out that this nice girl, her name was Ken, Ken um, Kenyatta, Kenyatta, she's pregnant. While you're out on bail, waiting for your trial and all that, or your sentencing, right. whatever. Right. And uh, anyway, fast forward, you end up in prison. Yeah. I mean, you're doing hard time in a real prison now. Right. And how old are you? I'm 19 at the time. I was 19. 19. I was 19. Kenyatta tell me she's pregnant. I'm out on bond. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm really contemplating my life. Like I got to do something. I got to do something different because this prison is looming over my head. And then I'm starting to think about, you know, my father who left me and how I felt and that I'm repeating this same cycle again. How do I go? How do I get in this cycle? And et cetera. I'm starting to retrace a lot of stuff, thinking about a lot of stuff. And so I would, uh, and this is probably something I did that I don't think nobody else did. I started going down to the courthouse while I was on, out on bond and just watching the drug cases happen, right? And and right. trying to figure out what's my best defense, uh, et cetera. And, 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 and what I would see, though, was, was shocking to me, and it was eye-opener. What I would see, though, in terms of that, I would see uh, in, in these cases, you had a... You had a black defendant who was charged. Uh, you had a white prosecutor. You had an all-white jury, and you had an all-white judge. And then day in and day out, you had guilty sentences. Right? I saw that day in. That's that. And, and, and no empathy or understanding of what's really going on. Right. So I start. I'm start now. I'm starting to become. I'm starting to become conscious of stuff because now I'm in the. I'm in the rat trap. So I want to understand the rat trap and I'm starting to see it. And so, and so fast forward, I was standing in court. Uh, I was expecting to, uh, I was expecting to go home. My daughter was born. Cause you didn't, cause you didn't, you really didn't have a, a record. I didn't have a record. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't have a record. So, I, so at, at minimum I was eligible for probation, a drug case. And so my daughter was born May 7th, May 21st. I was standing in front of the judge uh, expecting to go home. I even had character witnesses to say, man, he's not, he's not a bad kid. He did some stuff, but he's not a bad kid. And that judge said that I was a minister of society and sent me, sent me yeah. to prison. And so I, and I remember standing there when he said that to me, right, in my mind. This one, it became real. My mind, in my mind, I was saying, Judge, you don't understand. Like, like I'm really not a bad guy. You know, I'm just from a bad neighborhood, and in my neighborhood, judge, 
you have to be this way in order to survive. That's not really who you are. You just got to, you got to right. be. But that never came out of my mouth. It was just like that. And then at the, and at the same time, I'm afraid to go to prison. Sure. So the judge saying that I'm a minister to society, and here I am having this conversation, afraid to go to prison. You know what I'm saying? You, you, you get what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. He's yeah. saying he's saying you a minister to society. You should you, you belong in prison, and I'm sitting here having a conversation about judge. You don't understand. That's not who I am. I just had to be that, and I'm afraid to go to prison. I'm scared. I I'm scared. Help. Yeah, I need... still calling for help. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but fortunately for how me, how much? Though, go ahead. Yeah, how much time? I was going to ask how much time were you given? He gave me he gave me seven years. I was I was facing five to ninety nine, uh, but he gave me uh, he gave me seven years, seven years. So you go there, and I know there's so, there's so many details. I'm, I'm just looking at the clock, thinking, God, how can I get all this great story here? But you know, you there's a couple people, a couple things happened that really stood out to me in your story. Because number one, Fats introduced you to uh, the mom, Farid, who definitely right. instrumental in changing your path, right? Right, right. It's almost like God said, okay, I'm, I'm putting you here so you can meet Farid. Right. The librarian, right, right, that you meet, the old woman, I don't remember what her name was. Yeah. The old, the 60-year-old six, yeah. librarian. Yeah. You know, you start, you start reading 16 hours a day, dude. Yes. I mean, you're reading. Yes. yes. And yes. that a mom the imam sees something in you, you know, and right. you get introduced to the Muslim faith. Yeah. And the part that really struck to me still gives me chills thinking about it. Is that he, Cause he saw something in you. Right. Right. He's been observing you. He comes up and he says, little brother, he goes, you are a natural leader. Wow. And that's the first time wow. somebody ever said that. To me. Wow. I think that to me, dude, I think that's divine intervention. right there. Man, I honestly, man, that, that was the, that was the, Defining moment for me. That was the defining moment for me because when he said those words to me, in the way in, in the way that he said those words to me yeah. was important too. He said, "I've been watching you." He said, "These guys been paying homage to you. They do whatever you say. They fall out of place. They follow all of your orders." He said, "I've been watching you." He said, "If you can lead these guys to do wrong, little brother." You have the same ability to lead them to do right. You're a leader. Yeah. So you should lead. And I was shocked. You know, it was like it it it, it caught me by surprise, but it spoke to my soul. It spoke to where I was at that particular it, it was the exact words that I needed to hear if I was to change my change my life or change my trajectory in life. Those words pierced my soul so hard that he sent me on this path, uh to discover and find myself and, and, and reconnect with who I really am, uh, that I credit him for. I, I give him all the credit. Yeah, I love that. Had, had we not met, had we not intervened, had he not said anything to me, I can't honestly say I'd be sitting on this podcast with you because I, I could have went the other 100%. way. Yeah, I could have went. The, I, I went agree. into prison with, I went into prison as the leader of the blood. So I, that came with some perks. And so I, yeah, so you're already a target in there, right? And so it's just the the cycle's just going to perpetuate itself, right. right? If 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 he hadn't come up and kind of infused that kind of vision in you or whatever that happened, you just, you're gonna you're gonna be doing the exact same thing that you're doing on the outside, right? Because you got to survive in prison, right? Exactly. And so, yeah, and so you, I don't know how long was it a year, a couple of years now, the twenty first birthday that you really embraced Islam, right? Less than, I guess, about four months after you entered prison. I right, guess, right, there. right. Yeah. And and so that helps too. So I think you know, living that upright life, you know, taking that kind of at least live an upright life to establish peace wherever you may go. I mean, that's right. heavy. Right. I mean, if you really believe it, and so right. you you embraced it, and you're trying to denounce the old way in prison, and you get tested a handful of times. Yes. Yes, like people that you know, and hey, we're old school, man. We come from the same. And you're like, yes. it ain't me anymore, man. It's mm -hmm. not me. I started reading, and I started once I started learning a lot about myself. 
that that propelled me to places that I could have never imagined, like the relationship with the librarian. Who would ever thought that I would develop a relationship yeah. and we would talk about life and things that, and we related in such a way that it made it clear for me. I began to, I began to teach, but I'm going to tell you one thing that I did. I'm going to tell you one thing that I did that I don't want to miss. Is that, that experience helped me look into the mirror, right? Right. And it allowed me to accept and it allowed me to process everything that I've dealt with up until that point. Because uh, I, I became very, very introspective to, to everything and every idea, every influence that, that happened to my life. I retraced my life to when I was a kid and where I went off track. And I was, I was able to accept and I accepted everything that happened up until that point. You know, I was, I, cause I didn't want to be the one who blamed it on the system. I didn't want to be the one who blamed it on my mother. I didn't want to be the one who blamed it on my father not being there because at the end of the day, I had to accept that I made the choices that I made. And, and for me to get to the next stage in my life, I had to accept that. I, I couldn't blame nobody else for that. I had to accept it. And, and I did that. And, and, and that was, and that's that's looking into the mirror. That's that's becoming very very vulnerable, you know. You know, as, in this society, as men, we are taught to be uh, very masculine, and, and you don't cry, and you don't accept, and you can't be weak, and all that stuff. And I think that's that that kind of messaging is what keeps people from really self actualizing to the highest to the next level, because you are taught that to express your feelings is weakness. But what I've learned, being able to express, being able to accept everything that came with the choices that I made became my strength. It became my medicine, you know, and it, it became my medicine. That's beautiful that you said that because it is. We, we began the show saying it's a story of redemption, which is true. But it, a huge part of that redemption umbrella is that accountability piece that you're talking about. And exactly. to get to that accountability piece is, like you said, Get extremely authentic, transparent, and vulnerable with yourself. Man, that is a huge part of accountability that a lot of people don't really realize. And that is exactly what you did. You're exactly 100% right. Yes. And it is meeting the imam. It is meet, you know, right. the old librarian and talking about life. And, and I met, Rich, I met so many men in prison who had an excuse for every solution that you can bring right. to them. Uh, uh, that I felt that was a problem. I met so many men who, who, who were just afraid. Because what one thing I learned though, this one thing I learned, one thing I learned though was, for even for myself, all those layers that I put on. I was a good kid who encountered the stimuli in my environment that made right. that made me amputate my personality, my good kid personality, to become some somebody else. The gang was a, 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 an example of that. That was another layer that I put on, you know, to to protect myself. And so in prison, right, when I began to really deal with myself and start dealing with other men, I was I was I, I was able to see how they put layers on as well. You know, I had a friend. Yeah. I had a friend who was the head of the Aryan Brotherhood, man, who became my friend, right? And this guy, Great friend, this guy had tattoos from head to toe. Swastikas, everything from head to toe, right? Uh, but man, I, when I found myself, I you naturally have that propensity to want to find others, help others find themselves. And so when I would have conversation, I remember the guys used to see me in the day room, and they'd be like, "What in the world is Luck doing over there talking to that guy?" Right? But 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 what I found was in our conversations that we had a lot of commonalities. That that that. We, we cared about family. We cared about just a lot of stuff that's in common. But we, too, right. had these layers that we put on. We all we put these layers on that prevent, prevents us from having true human connection. Right. So when I so when I start having these conversations, I begin to see his tattoos, all the tattoos. One that he was a mean individual not to be messed with, as you would think. The tattoos were to ward you off because he didn't want you to mess with him because he was just like me, a kid 
just as as if I, just as I put on the gang to protect me, put on this gang identity to protect me. He put those tattoos on to protect him, and we were the same. And this and this the, the kind we the same individual. And this is you know, and this is the message that I had for a lot of a lot of prisoners, a lot of men that I was coming in contact with that we began to unlayer these layers and be vulnerable and be transparent with each other, that's when the real magic, that's when the real magic happens for you. It's scary, though. It's scary when you've, when oh, you, when you done layered yourself for 15 or 20 years, and now someone asking you to unlayer yourself, and it's all you know is scary. But I was fortunate enough to get a great deal of men to, to unlayer themselves just as I, I had done who became brothers, man, who became very different individuals and very different people. Uh, I mean, there's so much. I'm looking at the clock, and I, I mean, I feel like we need to do a part two on this. We definitely, I mean, we, this, we, we, we definitely, definitely got to do a part two. I was about to tell you that. Yes, I yeah, would love to. I mean, I, 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 but I want the, the listeners to know and to tease them for this part two. It's like, I mean, we just got to the point to where here you are in prison and you met their mom. You actually go to another prison in Palestine, Texas, which is like, I mean, that's a hell on earth place. Yes. And you lead people there and you meet all these relationships. And eventually you get out on parole and you meet Bishop, the late Bishop mm -hmm. Omar. Yes. And you guys start making a real impact in the community there in Dallas and doing contrarian things about right. how you look at school, how you look at all this stuff. that stuff. I want to talk about that in the, in the second episode. But yes. I think, because I know I got to be respectful of your time. You got another meeting here in about five minutes, and um, gosh, uh, I, I think we pick up part two with that. Let's talk a little bit about when you went to Palestine, Texas, and then right. how the great work that you did, the contrarian work that yes. you did uh, with Bishop Omar, confronting the the um, the Crips in their right. own territory, walking up. That's a story that I want people to hear. So I'm just teasing them so they'll yes. tune into the second episode yes. here. Yes. Uh, and then all the great work that you're doing with the urban specialists now. I want to hear all about that. And I think it, it's, 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 I don't want to rush through it because there's yeah. so much important things that we need to touch base on. So let's leave it at that, Anton, so I can be respectful of your time. But what do you want people to, to know uh, until we can schedule a second episode? What, what do you want people to walk away with from this episode? I, I want people to, to understand that um, that adversity, uh, all the things that go through, that you go through in life and that you will go through, uh, that's meant to take you out. You can, you have the ability to turn it around. You have the ability, you have access to turn that stuff around because that's your medicine. And your medicine oftentimes is not for you, it's for others. So when we do part two, we're going to talk about how everything that we just talked about up to this point, uh, how I was able to turn that into my medicine and to helping other people. But I want them to walk away understanding in part two, we're going we're gonna to show you how the correlation of the work that we do now is, is connected to that. Beautiful. I look forward to it, man. Anton, I love this. I love you. I love what you're doing. Love too. And, and, and I look forward to uh, doing the part two. Yes. All right, my friend. Until part two, Thank we'll you. sign off. Thank you, sir. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.